prophecy. Well, turn in your Bibles to Jonah if you can find that book. It's not easy. Good luck. You found it a few nights ago, but if not, you can just listen to me. Uh, if you go to Children's Bible Drill, we'll teach you how to find Jonah, but if not, you just hunt and peck around a little bit. The bells are really, really good. I will say there was one tall fella that <laughs> I think he was a fill-in. I don't know. He only had two bells to cover. Man, he, he was doing some counting and struggling, wasn't he? Well, look at that. <laughs> well, Parker, you do the best with can with what you, you do the best you can with what you have, I know. But the other than that, sounded real good. Just that one note, I kept kind of, every time we hit that note. But I think we made it through it. Prophecy comes when ancient Israel would drift into idolatry. When ancient Israel would drift into idolatry, then God would send a prophet. And the prophet's duty was not always so much to preach repentance, like we think of that role, but rather it was a prophet's duty to proclaim the word of God, to proclaim, thus saith the Lord God Almighty. The books of the Old Testament, these prophecy books, they record the words and deeds of those ancient preachers. They have literary creativity, and they are delivering a divine message. Well, one type of prophecy is the prophecy of disaster. God is going to bring a disaster. In Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we have a disaster prophecy. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Go, arise to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. Or look over at chapter 3, first verse is there. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, this is the commission of the prophet, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. See, they proclaimed the word of the Lord. There's a commission, arise and go, and then there's a proclamation of the word, the word of God. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk, and Jonah began to go through the city. One day's walk, he cried out and he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people respond by believing in God. This prophecy of disaster. Uh, there's another one. Now I'll just read it for you in 2 Kings. Sometimes that prophecy of disaster is to the whole nation. Sometimes the prophet shows up to an individual king, usually, and tells them it's not going to go well. The prophecy of Elijah to Ahaziah is an illustration. 2 Kings 1, 3, and 4. Here's the prophetic commission. Go up. It's usually this arrives. Go up and meet the messenger of the king of Samaria and ask them. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going off to consult Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, the Lord God Almighty says, the prophet delivers the word of God. What's the word of God? You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will die. This prophecy of disaster. Elijah says to the king, Ahaziah, you're not even going to get out of bed. You're going to die. You've drifted into idolatry. 
Is there no God in Israel? You had to go and worship the God of Ekron. Well, that's the prophecy of disaster. Of course, there has to be a flip side to that, and that would be the prophecy of salvation. The prophecy of salvation. Uh, maybe it'd be good to, to turn to, to one of those examples. Let's, uh, Jeremiah 28. That's a little easier to find than Jonah. Jeremiah 28. Jeremiah 28, we have a, a, a prophecy of salvation. Now, I want to warn you before we get there that in this prophecy of salvation, it is one that is, is not true. I, this is a false prophet. The false prophet, in this case, is giving a prophecy of salvation. Jeremiah 28, but it is an example of prophetic literature, this prophetic literature of salvation. Jeremiah 28, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel... I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'm going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I'm also going to bring back to this place Jehoiakim, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now, Jeremiah wasn't telling the people what they wanted to hear. Now, his was a prophecy of disaster. So they had a false prophet giving them the prophecy of salvation. The prophecy of salvation is, don't worry, Babylon's going to fall. All the temple uh, treasures that have been removed will be brought back. Everything will be okay, tickling the ears of the people. Another kind of prophecy is the woe speech. Woe to those, woe to those, woe to those we won't turn to it for time's sake, but Micah 2, 1 through 5 is a woe speech. Another kind is a prophetic hymn. Sometimes in the midst of the prophets, you end up with a song or a hymn embedded right in the midst of the prophetic literature. And this one is from Amos, Amos chapter 4. We have just such one of those songs. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind... And declares to a man what his thoughts are, who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth. The Lord God, the host is his name. So sometimes in these prophetic books, this is a minor prophet Amos, you get a piece that sounds like a song or poetry. And so within the prophecy, we have an existence of a prophetic hymn. Well, how do you, how do you interpret prophecy? First of all, let the Bible itself interpret prophecy as much as it can. In other words, when Jesus reads from Isaiah or the Psalms and he applies a, a Psalm of David to himself, then we know then that goes over to Jesus. Or in Isaiah, a prophetic piece of literature, when it's the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, that's a piece of prophecy. We know it applies to Jesus because Jesus applied it to himself. Another thing you want to do is follow the major movements and don't get lost in the details. Follow the major movements and don't get lost in the details. That's really hard to convince people to do. Uh, in the book of Daniel, I just wrote commentary for it. Some of you used it in your Sunday school lessons. And when you talk about a statue and the different types of metal and what kingdom each statue represents, and I presented two or three different scenarios and the arguments for them. But at the end of the day... It doesn't matter. What matters is whatever nations comprise the statue, 
that God orders the nations and kingdoms of men and God will destroy them. God will cause them to rise up and God will cause them to fall. And God is in control of the movements of kingdoms and nations. That's the point. If you spend 90% of your Sunday school lesson trying to decide what the multi-metallic feet represent, then you might have missed the point that God controls the nations. It's okay to explore, and I did in my commentary, but I tried not to lose the meaning of Daniel's message. Another kind of Old Testament literature is wisdom literature. Job, Ecclesiastes, but the one you know best is Proverbs. The one you know best is Proverbs. A proverb is a short, memorable lesson that summarizes what most often happens in life. It's not always true. It's not a promise that it will always turn out this way. It's just, you know, I've looked at life, and when I looked at life, this seems to be the way things go. You know, as you get older, you learn more, and when you stop learning, I guess you're dead. But as you, as you get older, you learn, and you think, why didn't somebody... Why didn't my great-grandfather write down all the things he'd learned, put them in a book, and then I wouldn't have to go through it, right? Well, he did. It's called Proverbs. That's what Proverbs is. It is men teaching the boys, the wise sages, observing life, and then summarizing how things go and how you ought to behave in life. Well, for example, Proverbs 14, a quick-tempered man does foolish things. Well, you've been watching some of the crowd at some of these NCAA basketball playoff games. There's one particular dad. I watched mostly the women's side, and he got so mad he just ran the stairs. I thought, well, there you go. And, and, the, and national TV caught, watches him every game because they know a quick-tempered man does foolish things. A crafty man is hated. It's this teachable, probable truth. It's not absolute. A gentle answer, you could finish it, couldn't you? A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, there's some people, somebody comes in angry and just lets them have it, and they don't get defensive, and they just say, I hear what you're saying. That anger just kind of goes away. But if the person on the other side of the table starts getting angry too and escalates the anger, then we have a war. A gentle answer turns away wrath. I heard a new one that's not in Proverbs. I said, after he told me, I said, that's right. It ought to be in Proverbs. One farmer told another farmer, when I'm hiring help, I always hire two people. If I hire one person, they want me to be the other helper and I can't get anything else done. But if I hire two people, the two workers will help each other, and then I'm actually free to go and do what I want to do. A wise farmer said, when hiring helpers, always hire two. Makes sense, doesn't it? That ought to be in Proverbs somewhere if we could add, add to the book. Proverbs. I love Proverbs. Teach us how to live life. Some people read a proverb a day. If you haven't read Proverbs in a while, read a proverb a day and learn the wisdom. New Testament. When we come to the New Testament, the one we love the most, perhaps, is a gospel. The type of literature, the genre called a gospel. 
A gospel is sort of a historical biography or a theological biography. And we cannot hold it to today's standards of times and dates and sequence and series. For example, one gospel writer might put the events in Jesus' life in a theological order, trying to emphasize a point, and another gospel writer might put them in a chronological order so that an event in Jesus' life might show up at different points in different gospels. It's a theological biography making the point, and so the order isn't promised to be chronological. It may or may not be. It may be a theological order to the, to the events. Well, also might matter to whom the gospel is written. Mark, perhaps, is writing to Gentile Christians in Rome who are undergoing persecution, and so his emphasis on the disciples' fear and the disciples' misunderstanding helps those Gentile believers, perhaps in Rome, suffer through the persecution they're experiencing. Well, how do you read a gospel? The first way to read a gospel is this. Remember, the key idea of any gospel, even John, that doesn't mention it uh, much, is the kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom of God has arrived. How many times have I said from this pulpit, if you have to summarize the, the sermon of Jesus in one sentence, it is, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. So when you read the Gospels, it's about the kingdom of God arriving. God, the creator, interrupting creation in a miraculous way through the gift of his son, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus could only be at one place at one time, and so he formed disciples. The disciples were to make more disciples, and they were to bear within them this kingdom ethic. And as the kingdom spreads, then the whole world begins to live like the kingdom of God. It spreads. It's, it's like a little seed. It's like a little mustard tree. And then it grows and has big branches, and the birds can rest in the branches. It grows. It's like a little piece of leaven, and it gets in the dough, and then it grows, you see. The gospel. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of all the gospels in Matthew 5 and following. And they begin with, blessed are the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is yours. The kingdom of God is the key idea to the gospels. In this key idea of the Gospels is also the already and the not yet. Repent for the kingdom of God is here. Yes, it is, Jesus, but not as fully as it will be when you return in your power and your glory. You see that? So we live with the arrival of the kingdom of God, but not the consummation of the kingdom of God. And so we live, that's why we have this strength. We are citizens of two kingdoms. We're still here on earth, and the kingdom of God is coming, and we feel the tension between the two. We still have earthly desires and heavenly desires, and we're at battle between the two. It's the already, but the not yet. We are already victorious in the resurrection of Jesus, but we're not fully free from the demons of earth, are we? And in this gospel, this kingdom of God demands a different kind of ethic, does it not? You have heard it said, 
you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, you can't even be angry at your brother or have a murderous heart. You have heard it said you cannot commit adultery. But I say, don't look on a woman as an object of lust. You have heard it said you shall love your friends and family. But I say to you, that's a hard one, isn't it? Love your enemies. There's no other kingdom which one loves one's enemies. None. No earthly kingdom has anyone ever been instructed to love their enemies or to pray for those who persecute them. It's the kingdom of God ethic that guides, guides us as we go. Be whole, be mature, even as a father is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. Well, within these gospels, we have a kind of literature called parables. And we love those, don't we? Because... Don't we all love a good story? Preaching, some preachers like some kind of preaching more than others. I like a story. I, I like Romans, but it's a new approach to me because Romans isn't really what? A story, you see. It's a theological letter, and so you treat it differently than one would treat a story. Well, the parable is a story, and not necessarily even an actual story, but is a, a genre within the genre of Gospels that leads us leads us to understand a kingdom principle. The overarching principle, the kingdom of God has arrived. Within the parable, this is what the kingdom looks like. And so we'll take the prodigal son. Everybody knows the prodigal son. An old way of interpreting parables was to allegorize them. That is, to make every little thing in the gospel have a special or decoded meaning. I'll give you an example of the prodigal son. It was something like this. An ancient interpreter said, well, the ring that the father gave the prodigal son represents Christian baptism. I don't know where he gets that. Do you see that? I don't see that. And the banquet... At the end, that's the Lord's Supper. The robe is your immortality, said the interpreter. And the shoes, God's preparation for your journey to heaven. That's making the parable an allegory. And the problem with that, allegorizing the parable, is you miss the meaning of it. You can sit there and talk about the ring and the shoes and the robe and put meaning on them. I mean, this is why they used to interpret parables. You can do that and, and learn nothing about what Jesus is trying to say. What Jesus is trying to say is there is boundless joy in God's forgiveness. That's what the parable of the prodigal son is about. But how about a little bit of allegory? Will you allow that? I like a little bit. I'm not somewhere in the middle because I want to say the father is God, right? You can see that one. The father is, is God, right? And, and the wayward son who demands his share of the inheritance and runs off, well, that's the sinner and the tax gatherer, the publican, right? And then there's that older son who always does everything right and never disappoints dear old dad, oldest kids are like that. They are, yeah, you've got one, maybe that's the way they are. Second kid, I'm the second kid. Oh, it's a different story, the second kid. But the, the first kid, he's the engineer, the surgeon, whatever. Right? First kid. Uh, well, the elder son is the scribe and the Pharisee. You see, 
God's forgiveness goes not to the scribe or the Pharisee, but rather the publican and sinner who truly repents. You see that? So I would agree, find the central meaning of the parable, but then as much as the allegory lines up with this real story, it's okay to let the characters be symbols. And here's the way you interpret a parable. You ask yourself, in this story, which character am I? Well, you're not God. So which one are you? Are you the sinning son who wallows in the pig pen and realizes he needs forgiveness and you run to the father and say, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Just bring me back as a hired hand. And there's dancing and joy and music. My son was lost. But now he's found. He was dead, dead to me. But now he's alive. Or are you the, the older boy, followed all the rules, have no patience for those who don't, walk with your head tilted just a little bit higher, and can't believe God's willing to forgive the disobedient in your midst. You see that? My favorite part of that parable, and you're going to get it every time I preach it because I can't not focus on that verse. While he was still a long way off, the father sees the son coming home. Tells me every morning the dad got up and looked for the silhouette of his son coming over the hillside, and the old man runs, which a a man of the Orient would be disrespecting himself to run. He runs to the sun. This is my son. Put shoes on his feet. Put ring on his finger. Put a robe on his back. He was lost. But now he's found. A parable. What's the main message Jesus is trying to teach? And any allegory you want to spin on it, make sure it comes from the text and you're not placing it into the text like the robe equals immortality, which there's no textual warrant for that. Another little genre in the Gospels are miracle stories. Now, the way people used to interpret miracle stories, at least the scholars used to interpret them, is explain them away. So the feeding of the 5,000, what happened was, well, we represented a little boy. Some people showed up with a lunch, and some people didn't show up with a lunch. And when Jesus started preaching about sharing and the gospel, then everybody started kind of breaking their bread and spreading it around. And kind of like when unexpected company shows up, and you put a couple more cups of water in the soup and call it good, and cut the chicken breast in half and do the best you can, cut the pie a little thinner, and that's just kind of what happened. And Jesus said, it's a miracle. And the real miracle, say these scholastic interpreters, is not that multiplied bread or fish, the real miracle is the sharing in people's hearts. And that's the way that was preached for decades by certain segments of the church. There's, that's not the story. The story's not, a, if it's about the miracle of sharing, I'm not even sure the little boy wanted to share his lunch necessarily. <laughs> it's not the miracle of sharing, it's the miracle of multiplying, Right? And why does it need to be a miracle? Because 
It means the kingdom has arrived and Jesus is the Christ. That's why. The miracles show that this man is absolutely different. So when they say, yeah, it looked like he was walking on water. You know, the people were up on the shore and he's on a sandbar and the reflection of the sun and it looked like a miracle and it's that... Well, I just don't buy it. It's not the way the story's presented. Either he walked on water or he didn't. You can tell me he didn't, and you'll just be wrong, but at least say he didn't. Don't say he walked on a sandbar. When Jesus throws out the demons, that's a miracle, right? I mean, that's a pretty big miracle. When he takes the demons out of a man and throws them into the swine, the swine jump over the hill, that's a miracle. Why? Because it represents all good, all power is represented in Jesus. Therefore, he is the Messiah. And even the demons, the devil, tremble at who he is. In fact, when Jesus preaches, what he says is, These things are happening. The gospel is being preached. You remember when John the Baptist sent word back and said, John the Baptist is in prison and it's not making sense. How can my cousin really be the Christ if, in fact, I'm in Herod's stinking dungeon? Something's not right. I thought he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But now he sends his disciples. John had his own disciples. And they asked Jesus, "Are, are are you really the one? If not, I'll start looking for another because it's not unfolding like I thought. Do you remember Jesus' response? You go and tell John, the blind receive sight, the lame are leaping, and those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf are hearing, the dead are raised. Yeah, look at the miracles. You tell John about them. I am the one. You see that? So if it's a miracle, the guy didn't really physically see. He just gets a spiritual insight. If you change that story, then it doesn't work. Now, you can say Jesus wasn't the Messiah. That's your decision to make. I've decided for myself. But don't say it's presented that way. It's presented that a man's actually blind, blind from birth, and he sees. And that the lame are leaping. And the dead are raised. When someone doesn't believe in miracles, they want to argue about the axe head floating. Now I went back to the Old Testament. But if they want to argue about a miracle in the New Testament, whatever they want to argue about, I just stop the conversation. And I say, do you believe that Jesus was crucified? Yes. Do you believe it's placed in the tomb? Yes. Do you believe he had a physical bodily resurrection on the third day? That's the only miracle that matters to me. If you say no to that one, the conversation is pretty much done. I mean, I'll be nice. and It'll be academic conversation. But I'm not going to bait you over the axe head. There's only one miracle that, that absolutely transforms everything. And if I can believe Jesus can walk out of that tomb alive, I certainly believe an axe head can float and the blind can see and the manna can be multiplied. You see, work it backwards. 
Somebody else talked to you about the miracles. Work it backwards. Go to the ultimate miracle that Jesus uh, arises from the tomb and he's bodily, not just spiritually, but bodily resurrected. And he says, touch my scars. Here's my side. If they say yes to that one, then, then I'll turn to them and say, you know, the axe head's not a really big deal now, is it? You see that? Multiplying manna, that's nothing. If the dead can be raised. So the miracles are another type of literature that testify that the kingdom of God has arisen. So the first type of literature is the gospels. We have four of them. Now three of them are called synoptic gospels. Uh, sin is with, optic is, you know that one, right? See, you see an optometrist, uh, an oculist, whatever you want to call it. An ophthalmologist, we've got a lot of names for those kinds of doctors. And the reality is that synoptic means Matthew, Mark, and Luke see things the same. With C, C together. Those gospels are very much alike. And then there's a gospel that comes written after those gospels. It's written by John. It's written later. And it's almost as if John, and probably did, have the sources at least with which the others wrote. And therefore, he filled in the gaps and he wrote differently. And uh, Jesus and John's gospel, he will sit at a well and have a long conversation with a woman. He'll meet a Pharisee in John 3 named Nicodemus and, and talk about the spirit and the wind. And he doesn't just say short little things. He sits down and has conversations and you see the different side of Jesus. And you don't even get to share in his birth in Bethlehem. You go all the way back to this thing called the word that's with God and is God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And you go all the way back to the pre-existent Christ. It is a beautiful gospel. It's not a synoptic gospel. It's called the fourth gospel, most likely written by John. It enhances or fills in the gaps in the other gospels. A gospel. When you read a gospel, remember it's a theological biography is trying to make a point. The point it's trying to make is with the birth of Jesus, the cosmic Christ has arrived. And he's brought the kingdom of God and it's not fully here yet, but it started. It'll grow like a seed. It will be strong. And in the end that God has worked with the ultimate lamb of God, he has not abolished the law, but he's fulfilled the law. And now we wait for him to return for his people. He's He's crucified, paid for our sins. He has arisen. He's ascended, enthroned, and now we wait for him to return for his people. So when you read a gospel, know the central part of the gospel to know what it's about. We're not going to finish Corky. Corky was supposed to start uh, the Sunday after Easter. So if Corky, here's your announcement. You're going to be shifted one week. Here we go. We didn't quite make it. A preview for what we have left. We have the genre of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And then we have the genre of epistles that are written by Paul and Peter and John and others. And then we have the genre of apocalyptic literature, which is Revelation in the New Testament. I'm the kid that always put too much food on his plate. I just didn't get it done, did I? I thought we could, but let's, let's don't rush it. Let's let it come at its own pace. And I think that it is. And so next, next week, you won't be here on Sunday night. You'll be here on Friday night. 
at 6.30. So next week, we won't be here on Sunday night. Uh, we'll be here on, on Friday night. And then the, that next week, I will finish this up. And then Corky's got us a study in the character of Joseph, Joseph's stories. And so we will begin that with Corky Holland, our, our senior adult pastor, leading us in a story, study of Joseph's studies. Let's pray. Oh, God... The Gospels challenge us. We can't read them and walk away the same. We read them and we have to decide. Am I going to die with him and rise with him or am I going to turn my back and walk away like the rich young ruler? He doesn't let me follow him halfway. He calls me to drop the nets, leave them in the boat, with my dad and walk away to fish for men. To stop counting the taxes and start counting people who matter to be saved, to repent, receive God's love. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.